Thanks for joining me for episode 7 of Bookum Dano, an old Hawaii Five O podcast. I am your fine and dandy host, Kristen Haas, aka Kiki Writes. In this episode, I will be covering two more episodes from the first season. Episode 12, Death Watch, and episode 13, Pray Love Remember, Pray Love Remember. Now I'm recording this episode during a rather stressful week in which I'm really pressed for time. So this is just another example of my inability to make good life choices. Oh, and I just wanted to remind everybody, as I said in the beginning, I endeavor to pronounce everyone's names correctly, but I fail a lot. This episode is a good example of that. Let's go to Hawaii. Episode 12, Death Watch. Air date, December 25th, 1968. Definitely not a Christmas episode. Directed by Herschel Daughtry. This is four of five for him. And written by Cheryl Hendricks. This is her only one. Prosecuting attorney Charles Cattison stops by his office on a Sunday to pick up some transcripts, leaving his pregnant wife in the car. Unfortunately, he walks in on a guy robbing his safe and is shot to death. 5-0 arrives to find that a gun in a case against Joseph Matsukino has been stolen, obviously by a pro, most likely a box man imported from the mainland. Stephen talks to Cattison's wife, Helen, but the stress of everything sends her into an early labor. At poolside, Joseph Matsukino gets word that the gun heist was a success and celebrates with his longtime buddy, Harry Cardonis, and their girlfriends. Dano and Kono show up to take Matsukino and Cardonis in for questioning. They're pretty uncooperative and smug sitting in Steve's office. Steve promises Matsukino that he'll go to prison and then dismisses him, keeping Cardonis. He plants the idea in Harry's head that Matsukino is scared and that Harry is now a threat because he knows too much. When Cardonis is finally turned loose, he goes back to the pool and tells Matsukino that McGarrett didn't get anything out of him because he didn't ask him anything. He just sat there waiting for his writ. Matsukino doesn't seem to totally believe him and Harry knows it. Matsukino and his girlfriend leave and then Harry's girlfriend borrows his car, which promptly blows up. Magara checks in with the hospital. Helen's not doing well and they're not sure they can save the baby. Things aren't much better with the car bomb. There's not a lot of evidence to go on and the victim was only 18. There's no word from Kono or Chinho's people about Cardanus and there's nothing on the box man either. Danny and Kono go off in search of the boxman while Chinho looks for Cardanus. They've got to find him before Matsukino does. Cardanus goes to see Matsukino and accuses him of trying to kill him. Despite Matsukino's protests of innocence, Harry says he's going to blow the whistle on him and head straight to 5-0. Steve wants him to testify at the trial the next day, but Cardanus doesn't think he'll live that long. They make a bet on it, and Harry enters police protection. They hide Cardonis in a hotel in Waikiki, and the first attempt on his life is a guy shooting at them as soon as they open the door to the hotel room. Steve kills him, and Cardonis knows him. Steve demands that the leak be plugged up and the hotel wing secured. Cardonis knows Matsukino will keep trying. Meanwhile, Danny and Kono confront a thief named Oscar on the beach about having a wallet that isn't his. They say they'll let him do his good deed and return it to the owner if he tells them what he knows about the boxman. Danny and Kono are pretty persuasive, so Oscar takes him to where the boxman is staying. He isn't there, but there's evidence that he's a heroin user. Danny tells Kono to check with all of their dope informants for a lead on the guy. 
Back at the hotel, Steve checks in on Helen, but things aren't going well. Cardonis overhears the conversation and admits that he's the one that hired the box man. Steve isn't as amused as Harry about how funny life is that Cardonis hired the guy that killed McGarrett's friend, and now McGarrett has to protect him. He's at least useful enough to give him a name, Murph, and a general description when Steve gets to Danny. Dano and Kono find Murph. There's a chase, a shootout, and Murph is shot by one of Matsukinu's men. He manages to tell Dano that he dumped the gun he stole in the harbor, but dies before he can implicate Matsukinu. The second attempt on Cardonis' life is poisoning the hotel's water with cyanide, which is pretty damn extra. The third attempt is a deadly allergen snuck into Cardonis' food. Will the third time be the charm? To be honest, you kind of hope so, because Cardonis is a really smug, annoying bastard. Testament to Nehemiah Persoff, he's the one who plays Harry Cardonis. I will talk about him more later when I go over the guest stars, but Nehemiah Persoff is brilliant. He's been in everything. I absolutely love him. He is so good in this role, but you still want to strangle him. It's an interesting setup, because you do. You have Cardonis, who's not a good guy. He's turning informant on Matsukino, who's a bigger, not very good guy. And Steve is put in that predicament of having to protect him, even though he's not a good guy. And Cardonis is just eating up the fact that Steve's put in this position. And it's interesting, too. They actually redo this setup in a later episode with Patty Duke, of all people. But there's a twist to it. It's, it's a little bit different. But it still has the same basis of people that you really don't want to protect needing to be protected. And Harry really is that guy. You know that McGarrett needs him to testify at the trial the next day so that they can put Matsukino away. And he deservedly needs to go. He's on trial for killing a bookie, I believe. But you just want to punch him in the mouth at some point. Yes, McGarrett needs to keep him alive, but he can still testify with a black eye or a broken arm. And there are points during their stay in the hotel that you really, really, really think he deserves it. So let's set up this tragedy a little bit. You have Charlie Cattison going to his office on a Sunday, so there's not supposed to be anybody in the building except the cleaning people, which is why the box man picked it to break in, so it wouldn't be disturbed. But he stops by just to run in, grab some transcripts, ends up getting shot to death by our intruder, our box man. If you are unaware, a box man is someone who cracks safes. But I guess this particular box man also dabbles in murder when it's convenient. His wife, Helen, hears the, the shots, runs in with the uh, one lone security guard and one cleaning guy and finds her husband dead. Later, 5-0 gets there, starts investigating. Steve comes in, talks to Helen, and she goes into early labor. Two things. One, first of all, she ran very well for a pregnant woman. Two, maternity clothes have come a long way. When they first started doing maternity clothes, they were very frumpy, very huge tent-like structures. She's actually wearing a cute shift dress style maternity dress. It's, it's rather cute, except for the color. The color is a shade of green that makes me think of a Christmas tree skirt. She can pull it off, but it just, it's actually really kind of a hideous color. Anyway, while talking to Steve, the stress of losing her husband in such a violent way ends up sending her into early labor. She says it's too early. I have no idea what month she's supposed to be in. She looks about eight, which is why her sprinting was so amazing. But 1968, they really did want you to keep that bun in the oven as long as possible. 
So throughout the rest of the episode, Steve calls in to check on Helen and check on on the baby. The thing is, is that they don't exactly say, I guess, otherwise that she's gone into early labor and that she seems to be having a difficult labor. They don't really elaborate on her issue, what the medical dangers are, other than, I guess, going, it's premature labor and it's a difficult labor. The one spoiler I will give you, in the end, Helen and the baby both make it. She delivers a, a beautiful baby boy that looks to be about three months old, and she says looks just like his father, and I don't know, all babies look like disgruntled old people when they first come out of the womb, and I don't blame them. Now, of course, when evidence from your impending murder trial goes missing, you're obviously going to be the prime suspect of arranging for this to happen. So Danny and Kono go to pick up Matsukino and Harry Cardanus, which I think I'm mispronouncing his name. I watched the episode twice and you would think it would have stuck, but I think I keep mispronouncing it. So sorry, Harry. But anyway, Danny and Kono go to pick them up and they're actually quite smug about it thinking, you know, you don't have anything on on me. And apparently from the look of surprise on Matsukino's face, when Danny tells him that he's being picked up for murder, I don't think the boxman told him that Charlie Caddison had been shot in the process. I think he just told him that he got the gun, which I don't know. I think that's something you should mention. But anyway, they get hauled into Steve's office and they're not going to talk. But Steve just kind of lays it down on how this is going to play out. And then he does something absolutely brilliant. I loved how this played out. Sit down. I'm not finished. Look, man. We gave you name, rank, serial number. You know you got nothing on us about what happened to the prosecuting attorney. So uh, why don't you... I said sit down. Now listen. We're going to walk into that courtroom Tuesday and you're never coming back out. We're going to nail you for killing that bookie, with or without the gun. That's murder number one. But if that doesn't work... I'll spend every resource of this office to convict you for the brutal murder of my friend, Charlie Cattison. That much I promise you. If it's the last thing I do at this desk, I'll see you in Oahu State Prison for life. Now get out. Oh, man. You sure got a burn. Come on, Harry, let's play. Yeah, let's you, get out. You, Matsukino, get out. You, sit down. What are you trying to pull, McGarrett? I said sit down. He don't know nothing. Tono, show him the way. You play cool, baby. Don't worry, pal. He ain't playing no games with me. Better not. I'll have you out of here with a written 15 minutes. Meet me back at the joint. Okay, tell my gal not to wander off. We got plans. Yeah. It's your deck, McGarrett. Deal. You've been closer to him than anybody, Cardonis. seen him like this before? Like what? Scared. Joe Matsukino, king of the rackets, is running scared. That kind of puts you on the spot, doesn't it? I don't know what you're fishing for, but you're coming up 
supposing you were Joe Matsukino, standing trial for murder number one. You import a box man to get rid of a gun and a prosecutor. He scores. That leaves only one other thing to worry about, right? Hey, look, you're wasting my time. Say what you got to say and let me go. I got a date. Could be with a couple of 38 caliber slugs. And what's that supposed to mean? When a man runs scared, he'll get rid of any possible threat. You're a threat to him, God knows. You're the only man alive who knows as much about him as he does himself. Now, what would you do if you were in Matsukino's shoes? Huh? Just exactly what he's gonna do. Raise a stink to high heaven about the police rousing innocent citizens. Now that's the last word you're gonna hear from me. Book me or let me loose. No hurry, Cardonis. Just sit down and relax. There'll be a man along with a writ to spring in a little while. Meanwhile, uh, use the time to think about what I said. Who knows, it, uh, might even save your life. He dismisses Matsukino and holds Cardanus. So he separates the two of them and then just plants the idea in, in Harry's head that Matsukino is scared. There's only one person left who poses any threat to him and that's you because you know everything. And Matsukino is just scared enough to take advantage of that. And it's brilliant too because that's all he says. He just says, "You're gonna. I want you just to sit here and think about it while the writ for your release comes in. And then obviously Harry goes back to Matsukino and tells him, well, yeah, I just sat there. McGarrett didn't ask me anything. And Matsukino doesn't buy it. And you can watch how that plays out. Matsukino, by the way, is played by James Shigeta, who I absolutely love. This episode is filled with people I absolutely love, playing, a- playing characters that I just want to throttle. But the interplay between Matsukino and Cardanus in that scene because we have two amazing actors. It's just brilliant. You can see Harry boasting, saying, you know, they don't have anything on us. They're just strong-arming us. You know, I just sat there. They didn't ask me any questions. And you can see on Matsukini's face, just slowly him not totally buying this. And then you get Cardanus realizing that Matsukino doesn't totally buy it. And he's thinking about what McGarrett said. And then Matsukino makes up an excuse to leave with his girlfriend saying, come on, you know, the day's kind of shot, but we still have some time to hang out together, asks Harry to pick up the check, and leaves him with his girlfriend. Now, his girlfriend is supposed to be 18. I don't know how old Matsukino's girlfriend was supposed to be, but this girl was supposed to be 18. She's like 18 going on 30. And the other issue is, why would an 18-year-old be hanging out with, obviously, like, 40-something looking Nehemiah Persoff? And I'm asking this as a former... 19-year-old who dated men 10, 15 years older than me when I shouldn't have. But anyway, for a small part, she's not a throwaway character, and you don't realize that until later. She's just not somebody to be blown up because she tries to feed Harry an hors d'oeuvre of some sort, and he he's brooding right now about Matsukino, and he pushes her hand away from him and says, get that away from me, baby. You know that stuff's poison to me. And at the time, you don't think anything of it other than he's being pissy because then that leads 
directly into him saying, I want to go for a swim and she's not dressed for it. And that's why she borrows his car to leave to go get her bathing suit and ends up blowing up. So you think it's an insignificant throwaway meant to highlight him brooding and him being in a kind of a pissy mood and kind of being a bit of a jerk when actually it's the foreshadowing of the third attempt on his life. And I don't think they ever said specifically what the allergen is, but I'm going to guess it was probably shellfish. That's common enough, and it would have been easy for them to sneak it into the food, which is what it's alluded to happens. But it's not so common that a lot of people have that because they make a point of the food being tested, but obviously whoever tested it didn't also share the same allergen. So obviously his girlfriend and his car blowing up is enough to convince Cardanus that McGarrett was right and that Matsukino wants to do him in. And he confronts Matsukino on it before saying he's going to the cops. He's already decided that he is a dead man. And that's why he goes to 5-0. He's going to tell him everything he knows before Matsukino can kill him because he's convinced that nothing's going to stop that from happening, which is why Steve makes the bet. He goes, we'll put you in police protection. And he's like, that doesn't matter. You're not going to stop him. Once Matsukino decides to kill somebody... He's going to have him dead. There's really no point. And even though Steve points out that the trial is the next day, it's still not enough. There's still too much time for Matsukino to get at him. And Steve's like, well, what do you have to lose? You can tell us everything you know, and we can keep try to keep you alive to testify at the trial. If you die, you die. If you're so convinced you're going to die, what's it to you? So Steve makes him a bet and says, I bet that we can keep you to the trial. And he bets against it. So it's kind of an interesting way to get Harry into police protection. Now they put Harry up in a hotel and one thing I noticed with this particular episode a lot of the outdoor scenes and the scenes where they're walking Harry to his hotel room and they're kind of taking him in through a back way to his hotel room it seems like a lot of those scenes were dubbed where the sound was off just a little bit it happened a lot at the pool it happened in that hotel scene and it happened one other time I can't think of it but it just it was just something that I noticed I don't know if the roosters were particularly loud that day because you do hear one later in the episode when they go to the boxman's place and that scene doesn't seem to be dubbed but there were a lot of them that seemed like this either the scene was dubbed or the sound was off it was just something i noticed anyway they get him into the hotel room and as soon as the police officer opens the door a guy shoots at him and cardanus means manages to get out of the way and steve manages to kill the guy and apparently he got in from the roof got into the room. So obviously Steve demands that security be tightened even further, that any leaks that are found are plugged up. They cannot be having with this. He's got a bet. Meanwhile, Danny and Kona are looking for the box man and they find a guy named Oscar on the beach, watch him steal a wallet from somebody and then snag him for that. So they have a reason to hang him up so they can get some information out of him. Oscar is played by Randall Duck Kim. We saw him previously in the episode by the numbers he played john lowe the guy who ended up killing the serviceman and what was interesting about that is in that episode he looked like he was probably in his early 20s in this episode he looks like he's about 16 and he's supposed to be a box man as danny says something about the market being a little thin for people in his line of work right now so that's why he's taken up stealing so he's supposed to be this safe cracker, and yet he he looks like he, yeah, he does that after he gets his homework finished, because he doesn't even, he doesn't even look like he's old enough to have an actual driver's license, maybe a permit. 
he just looks, for whatever reason, he just looks so young in this episode. But anyway, Danny and Kano talk to him and they persuade him by basically saying that if he doesn't cooperate and give them any information that he might have on the imported boxman from the mainland, they're going to pick him up for stealing the wallet. So he ends up taking them to the boxman's house, which is really, you have to watch the episode. Hawaiian architecture is so interesting when it comes to the houses. Everything's built up a little bit. The rooms are interesting. There is a an amazing amount of wood paneling that happens. I love them. They're glorious. This house also features the wildest phone I have ever seen. I know they were kind of somewhat popular in the 1960s. I can't really describe it. You'll just have to watch the episode to look for it. It's turquoise. It's beautiful. You can't miss it. But it's a funky, funky looking wall phone. And Danny actually uses it to call the office. But first, he and Kono search the place. They don't find anyone. They don't really find anything. They definitely don't find the gun that they're looking for. But Danny goes through the trash and finds evidence that the boxman is a heroin user. He finds paraphernalia and a bit of paper that had some heroin on it. Here's the thing. He digs through this garbage, which there's nothing really gross in it. It's mostly papers, but he, he pulls out stuff in there, finds the paraphernalia, and he does the very TV Hollywood thing of tasting what's on this paper to see if it's narcotics or not. Okay, it's one thing, it's bad. That's not how you test for drugs. We all know this. You don't stick your finger into an unknown substance and put it on your tongue. But more than that, he got it out of the garbage and did this. That's like an extra level of gross. I love you, Danny. You're my TV boyfriend. Please be more sanitary. The heroine is a good lead though because they know that their boxman will need a fix. So they put out the word to their informants. They are looking for this boxman. Meanwhile, back at the hotel, Harry is getting on everyone's last nerve because he is he's rather smug about this. He is so convinced that he's going to die that he doesn't really have a care in the world. So he's kind of enjoying the fact that he's lounging in this hotel room and inconveniencing a bunch of cops. So he overhears this conversation Steve calls to check in on Helen and that's when he realizes well he hired the box man that killed her husband and Steve's friend and now Steve has to protect him and he thinks it's hilarious and it's at that moment Steve nearly loses his mind and you don't blame him. I've been in the rackets long enough to know you can't buck the odds. When a pro is gunning for you he's gonna get you. Like he gave it to Charlie Cattison. Sure. He was a dead duck the minute I picked up the phone and called the mainland for the box man. When I set that contract, Matsukini and me just sat back and relaxed. You set that contract? What do you think you're doing, huh? You got that box man to come here and gun down Charlie Cattison. All right, maybe not as neat as it worked out. Cattison stuck his head in at the right time and our boy got two birds with one stone. And I have to keep you alive. I've got to protect you so you can walk into that courtroom tomorrow. Yeah, you got... <laughs> you know, that's pretty funny, huh? <laughs> I get the box man for Matsukino, and he rubs out your buddy, and you got to stay here with me like a pigeon waiting for Matsukino to knock me off, or maybe you too. Shut up. <laughs> that's pretty Shut funny, Shut up! Huh? You really kind of wish you just would have, like, I don't know, socked him one. It, that's not good police procedure. Not something the police should be doing. We don't encourage the police using excessive force. But in this case, you're willing to make the exception 
that he could have testified with a black eye or a bruised shin or maybe a dislocated shoulder. Because you do. You just wanted to punch him right in the mouth. But he does give up necessary details and descriptions about the box man, which are quite helpful. And Steve gets that description out so Danny and Kono can find Murph, which is a great name for a box man, really. So they find Murph, figure out where he's scoring his stuff. And when they do, there's another car sitting there with a couple of guys in it watching him. Murph spots Danny and Kono because how can you miss Kono? Takes off running. They give chase. The way it's played out, there's a small shootout between Murph and Danny. And then as Murph tries to run away, Matsukino's men apparently had gotten ahead of him and shoot him. So as he lays dying, Danny interrogates him. But aside from knowing that the gun ended up in the harbor, he can't use him to implicate Matsukino. He ends up dying. So with the box man dead, Cardonis is really the last witness that they can use. And he is just living it up at this hotel. He's poured himself a glass of scotch and he asks one of the officers to get him a glass of water or some water to go with the scotch. I think he says something to the effect of last request of a condemned man. Even the cops know that. So the officer goes to get him his water and he's sitting there running his mouth to McGarrett talking about how cops are patsies and they're good for writing tickets, but not much else. And we hear a crash and they run into the bathroom to find that the police officers collapsed. Steve sees the broken glass, checks the water, and it's not faucet water, mind you. They have an ice water tap. And I have never stayed in a hotel that fancy in my life. The hotels I usually stay in have holes in the wall and butterflies drawn on the wallpaper and crayon. And there are condoms next to the Nestle Crunch Bars and the vending machines in the hallway. This hotel is swank. It's got its own ice water tap. Steve pours some water from Matt and smells it and says it smells like bitter almonds. If you're versed in poisons, as I am, because I'm a writer, then you know bitter almond smell is associated with with cyanide. So basically, Matsukino, or someone who works for Matsukino, poisoned an entire water line in order to kill one man. That is the kind of extra you just don't get with criminals these days. Not too many of them will go above and beyond and are willing to poison hundreds of innocent people just to get one guy. Fortunately, Steve figures that out, has the hotel cut off the water and alert the other guests so there are no other fatalities that we know of. But what's rather telling about this is that Harry's standing there in the doorway leaning casually on the door frame and he's like oh what you got a little trouble there and he says i told you maybe not the first time maybe not the second but it'll happen and he also seems to be taking just a little bit of joy in the fact that other people are are getting the hits meant for him that he's taking out a few cops on his way out which again that smugness that really makes you want to just punch him in the mouth and of course the third attempt is putting the allergen in his food, which has been tested. They bring it in through room service. He's also brought a cigar, which he's been smoking his own for the duration of being in the the hotel, but then a cigar comes with his meal. And Steve asks if it's one of his own, and he's like, no, the guy brought it. And so he takes it and breaks it in half and smells it and then throws it on the, the table, which just thoroughly disappoints Harry. So Steve pulls a pack of gum out of his suit pocket and throws it on the table and goes, chew gum till morning. Finally, a way for Steve to get back at him through his nicotine addiction. But then it's a few minutes after he's eaten that the allergen kind of takes effect, which 
plays kind of fast and loose with most allergies. They're usually not quite that slow acting, but it could have been something that he, like one of the very last things he ate. But he sort of starts going into anaphylaxis and they end up first having a doctor examine him and then it's the doctor that poses the possibility of an allergen and then they take him to the hospital. And I won't spoil it because you really don't know until the very end whether or not Harry makes it. You know that Steve has a trick up his sleeve, though, when he shows up at court. The way the ending plays out, it's just so delicious. It just wraps everything up so beautifully. It's so well done. It's truly satisfying. Now, I've already talked a lot about the guest cast, but I'm going to talk about them even more. As I said, Harry Cardonis was played by Nehemiah Persoff. We'll see him in six more episodes. He has 205 credits going back to 1948, according to IMDb. He showed up in things like Thriller, Twilight Zone, I Spy with Raymond Massey, and I Spy with Robert Culp, Man from Uncle, Gunsmoke, Big Valley, Ellery Queen, Columbo, Little House on the Prairie, Charlie's Angels, Battlestar Galactica, Barney Miller, Magna P.I., Murder, She Wrote, Law and Order, and he appeared in movies such as Twins, An American Tale, Yentl, and Voyage of the Damned. As I said, Joseph Matsukino was played by James Shigeta. He had a recurring role on Medical Center as Dr. Osaka. He also showed up in both the TV series Khan and an episode of Fantasy Island with Kai Day. He did an episode of I Spy and an episode of Emergency, both with Julie London. He also showed up in things like The Rockford Files, Little House on the Prairie, Masquerade, Love Boat, TJ Hooker, Airwolf, two episodes of Magnum P.I., including one of my favorites, 40 Years from Sand Island, Simon and Simon, Murder, She Wrote, Babylon 5. He also turned up in movies like Mulan, Drive, Midway, Flower Drum Song, and Die Hard. Helen Caddison was played by Mara McGivney. We'll see her in one more episode. She showed up in things like Hawaiian Eye, Peter Gunn, Perry Mason, The Fugitive, Mikhail's Navy, My Three Sons, The Invaders, Adam-12, and The Virginian. And, as I also said, Oscar was played by Randall Duck Kim. This is the second episode we saw him previously in By the Numbers. Our victim, Charlie Caddison, was played by Bob Turnbull. We'll see him in five more episodes. He also showed up in things like Combat, Man from Uncle, Petticoat Junction, Ironside, and My Three Sons. Peter Willis, who I believe was uh, another one of the attorneys. He was played by Kent Bowman. We'll see him in four more episodes. He was also on The Brian Keith Show. Our boxman Murph was played by Dan Legand. We'll see him in two more episodes. He also turned up on Hill Street Blues, The X-Files, King of Queens, and Everybody Hates Chris, and showed up in movies like Ernest Goes to Jail, Peggy Sue Got Married, and Escape from Alcatraz. Cardonis' girlfriend Holly was played by Ruth Blacker. This is her only credit. Matsukino's girlfriend was played by Sammy Fu, and this is her only credit. The doctor who examines Cardonis in the hotel was played by Ted Hard. This is his second episode. He was also a doctor in Yesterday Died and Tomorrow Will Be Born. The nurse that McGarrett talks to in regards to Helen, she's played by Tuuliki Paananen. I am guessing at that pronunciation. We'll see her in two more eps, so I'll have a couple more chances to get that right. She showed up in movies such as The Leopard Man, Stolen Death, and Soldier's Bride. Now I've already gone on and on about Herschel Daughtry because this is like his fourth episode that he's directed for the series. So 
A writer, Cheryl Hendricks, she wrote quite a bit of television, it seems. She did eight episodes of Combat. She also wrote for Bonanza, The Virginian, Wild Wild West, Manic, Smod Squad, Mission Impossible. She did the Columbo episode that starred Leonard Nimoy as a murderous surgeon. Canon, Eight is Enough, and she wrote the TV movie, Final Jeopardy, starring Richard Thomas, Mary Crosby, and Jeff Corey. And that is Death Watch. It's quite a well-done episode, one that I actually don't watch very much just because those smug characters like Cardonis and Matsukinu can really get under my skin and just make me want to reach through a TV screen, or in my case, my laptop screen, and just choke the shit out of them. So I have to be, I actually procrastinated a little bit getting this episode done because I just didn't want to have to sit through this episode two times in a row because I wasn't sure my blood pressure could handle it. But that's a personal complaint. It actually is a really well done episode. And as I said, Nehemiah Persoff and James Shigeta are just excellent, especially their scene after leaving McGarrett's office. Just so good. So pick a day when you can tolerate some arrogant bad guys and give this one a watch. I'll tell you what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna blow the whistle on you! Thanks for coming, Steve. What have we got, sir? A student from the Institute found murdered. So if it isn't terrible enough that a young woman is murdered, it has to be here at the Institute. Blasted. Go to any city in the United States, ask anyone. The Pacific Cultural Institute, what is it? You won't find two in a million who've ever heard of them. An honest attempt to help the emerging nations of the Pacific, and no one's ever heard of it. Every press release winds up on the end of page 26 under an ad for T-shirts and tennis shoes. Well, it'll make the front pages now, sir. Yeah, front pages. Beautiful Asian student murders at Pacific Cultural Institute. Steve, we've got to button this thing up in a hurry. All right, we'll stay on it round the clock, Governor. Terrible waste. That girl worked to get here, worked to stay here. All that hope, and there it goes. Keep me informed, Steve. Yes, sir. What brought the governor out? He confronted a Senate committee when the Institute was proposed. He has the pen the president used to sign the Institute into existence. He was here at the dedication. He's been trying to tell the people about it ever since. Episode 13, Pray, Love, Remember, Pray, Love, Remember. Air date, January 1st, 1969. Happy New Year. Directed by Richard Benedict. This is the third of 11 for him. And written by John D.F. Black. The third of 10 for him. A young woman is found dead by a pond at the Pacific Cultural Institute. The governor wants 5-0 on the case because the institute is his baby. He pushed hard for its creation and has been trying to get more attention for it, but a murder isn't the kind of attention it needs. The victim, Mirabai, a 21-year-old student from Indonesia, was strangled by someone very strong because they only used one hand, a left hand, but her purse and money are still there. They find an odd circular impression in the mud nearby, which they take a plaster cast of. They also take a cast of a footprint which is about a size 15 and judging by the depth, belonging to someone weighing between 210 and 260 pounds. Steve asks for a roundup of Mira's friends at the Institute and from them finds out that Mira was with her boyfriend John Hayes at a dance the night she died. 
The two of them appeared to have had an argument, and she left in tears, with John going after her. Mira was sweet, with no enemies, and John was the perfect guy. He's also a big guy, about 6'6 and over 200 pounds. Jin Ho sees this as an easy one, but Steve wants to find John Hayes first. Well, the man in question is passed out on a beach. He and his hangover get a rude awakening from a little kid who dumps sand on him. He splashes some ocean water on his face to wake up, and as he stumbles along the beach, he overhears a report on the radio. 5-0 is looking for him. John Hayes turns himself in and finds out that Mira is dead, which he doesn't take very well. He was late picking her up for the dance because he was getting her engagement ring. The argument at the dance wasn't because Mira didn't want to marry him, but because she did. But she also had to go back to Indonesia after she graduated, not just because her student visa would have expired, but because she felt an obligation to her father to return to her homeland with her education. She was upset and left the dance crying. John followed her only to have her walk away. So he went to the nearest bar and began a blackout bar crawl of self-pity. He only remembers the first two bars for sure and can't remember where he left his motorbike. He can't remember anything after the second bar until he woke up on the beach that morning. Steve has his team verify the parts of the story John can remember to help establish a timeline, calling bars in the area to see if anyone remembers John being there, and putting out an alert for his motorbike. His bike is found, and the bartender definitely remembers him because he roughed him up and trashed the place, but that was after the murder. When Steve asks John to sign his statement, he realizes John is left-handed and arrests him for the murder of Mirabai. Steve and Chen Ho go back to the pond. Something isn't sitting right with Steve. Chin Ho tells him that the governor has been calling about the case. Steve tells him to tell the governor that they'll go to the prosecution in 24 hours. Chin leaves Steve to his thoughts, which are interrupted by a little girl named Miyoshi. She wants to know if he's a policeman and if he finds missing fish. You see, two koi fish, Yamamoto-san and Takahashi-san, are missing from the pond. They were there the day before, and they're gone now. Something clicks for Steve. He asks Miyoshi if he can borrow her drawing of the two missing koi and says he'll try to find them. To the amusement of his team, Steve puts out an APB for the missing fish. Koi are worth a lot of money, and that circle impression at the murder scene? It's the bottom of a bucket. A new possible scenario is emerging. They find a stolen koi at the house of a rich couple who just moved to the islands, which leads 5-0 to the man who procured the fish for them, Benny Appa, a large man who shows that he can be violent when Steve and Kono chase him from a cockfight into a sugarcane field. Now, both John Hayes and Benny Appa look good for the murder of Mirabai, but which one of them did it? Now, obviously, I'm not going to tell you, but what I am going to tell you is that this is a heartbreaker of an episode. In most episodes, there is a clear-cut bad guy. Someone that you just don't like, that is up to no good. They're the villain. There's no doubt about it. In this particular episode, both suspects are so sympathetic, you really don't want either of them to be guilty. You feel really badly for both of them. Because John Hayes isn't painted as a typical angry boyfriend, upset over being rejected. When Steve tells him that Mira's dead, he falls to pieces. He cries throughout his entire statement. He's so devastated by the loss of this woman that he loves. And while it's entirely feasible that, yeah, he could have gotten blackout drunk, run into her later during his blackout bar crawl, and because he was upset, killed her, and then continued on drinking and, and totally didn't remember it. While that's, you know, certainly feasible, you definitely don't want that to be the truth because you feel so awful for him. 
He legitimately cannot remember what happened that night. And he's legitimately devastated by the fact that the woman that he loved and the woman that he wanted to marry is dead. And then later we meet Benny Appa and it's speculated that he might have killed Mira because she caught him stealing the koi fish. But then after five O talks to Benny and you get to know Benny a little bit, you don't want him to be responsible for her death either. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. Let's start at the beginning. Mira is found dead by the pond. The governor gets involved, calls in 5-0. They begin their investigation. And it's a pretty straightforward investigation. They look at the evidence that they have at the scene, knowing that she was choked by someone who's left-handed, finding the circular impression, finding the footprint, realizing that they're dealing with a large dude. And then they do the roundup of her friends at the Institute and talk to them. And I love the way that scene plays out because they do it as a montage. They end up talking to four people who are with her the night before or saw her the night before and they intercut their stories together. So you get the the whole story of her last night through their eyes. And of course, everybody talks about John Hayes and the last guy they talk to says that he's a super nice guy and a really good athlete and they never, they've never seen him lose his temper. So obviously they need to get a hold of John Hayes and talk to John Hayes. He's a prime suspect at this point, despite his reputation of being such a wonderful guy. But Steve's pretty sure that this guy doesn't actually exist. She had no enemies. Kind, generous, pleasant, hardworking student. And in love with John Hayes, who was also in love with her. Inseparable. And John Hayes last to see her alive without a mean bone in his body. A resurrected Sir Lancelot is nowhere to be found. I just left the Dean of Men. Guess who's six feet six, strong as a bull, and wears size 14 and a half triple E shoes. Sir Lancelot, John Hayes, who else? 25, blonde hair, blue eyes. Sounds like the prototype for E-Man commercials. Nobody's 25, blonde hair, blue eyes, strong as a bull, and six foot six. They must have made him up. Hey, boss, easy case. Everything fits like one to six. Maybe. Well, how maybe? Hayes fits, got a motive. Chief Fong said the girl was choked by a cat that goes maybe 250, got big feet. Maybe. Connor, how much weight you carry? About 245. What size shoe do you wear? I got dainty little feet, size 13. I have to say, there's actually a surprising amount of humor in this episode, considering just how somber and how, how ultimately emotionally devastating the episode actually is. There's quite a bit of humor that sort of gives you some bright spots so you don't spend the whole time depressed, basically. Because it's it's ultimately a rather sad episode. So the first time we meet John Hayes, he's lying on the beach, asleep, with a piece of newspaper over his face. He's still wearing a suit from the night before. And this little boy comes up to him. Fill, you watch him fill a bucket full of sand and he comes up to him and dumps it on his face. And then... The first words out of his mouth were, I ought to choke you or I ought to strangle you or something like that. So your first introduction to him is that he's passed out on a beach and when he comes to, he is rather mean to this little kid who is not impressed at all and ends up hissing at him. John thinks that's funny and stands up and ends up towering over this small child and hisses back at him and the kid takes off running. What I thought was really great about the way they shot that 
and later the way they shoot Benny Appa when you first meet him. In both cases, they shoot from below the actor looking up, so it accentuates just how big the actual actors are. Denny Miller, who plays John Hayes, he was a bodybuilder at one point, I believe. I mean, he was a very muscular guy, but he's listed, I think, as about 6'4". Ron Feinberg, who plays Benny Appa, he's listed as 6'7", and also a pretty naturally big dude. Not necessarily muscular, just he's a large man. So to shoot them in such an imposing way just accentuates the idea that either one of these men were big enough and strong enough to kill Mira one-handed. So John hears that 5-0 is looking for him on a radio broadcast. Boy, you don't get stuff like that these days. And he turns himself in and he finds out that Mira is dead and just basically falls to pieces. Which is kind of interesting. In this day and age, you really don't see that very often. You don't see a grown man, especially a big man like John Hayes, fall to pieces like that. You don't have them displayed as such with such vulnerability. But they did. I mean, he falls apart and he cries throughout most of the statement and has to stop a couple of times because he is so overcome with grief and loss and heartbreak for what happened. Now, of course, he also can't remember a big part of what happened, despite Steve poking at him and pressuring him and questioning him. Anybody who's had a real good bender knows that sometimes you lose bits and they never come back. All right, John, after the Moana, where did you go then? I, I don't remember. I blacked out. I just don't remember. Well, you better remember, mister. You better bust a gut remembering. I don't know. I remember being at the Moana. And the next thing I remember is the beach this morning, and I don't know how I got there. I'm, I'm blank, empty. Then how can you be sure you didn't kill her? I loved her. I wanted to marry her. And when Steve has John Hayes sign his statement, or sign something in regards to his statement, he realizes he's left-handed, and he arrests him for the murder. So Chin Ho and Kono are both right. It does look like a very straightforward case, and it's played that way for the most part. They question Mira's friends, They look for the boyfriend. They interrogate the boyfriend. The boyfriend was shown to not only get blackout drunk, but also to have had an episode of violence because they bring in a bartender who says that he stiffed him for a round of drinks on the house. He tore the place apart. He nearly tore his arm out of the socket. So he had a violent episode during the course of the evening. And then, of course, he's left-handed, which is a key piece of evidence. As well as he's big enough, he matches the specs for the shoe print that they have found. So everything points to John Hayes. It should be one and done right there. But there's something that Steve can't let go of. There's something that he's hung up on. And so what could have easily been a half hour episode or less carries on because of Steve's super cop intuition. Part of that is because everything else adds up except for the circular impression that they took a plaster cast of that was left at the crime scene. So far, nobody knows what that is, where it came from. And I think that's part of what bugs Steve and why he goes back to the pond. He's trying to to put that one last piece of the puzzle into this picture. And that's where he meets Miyoshi. And she is absolutely adorable. She's got pigtails. She's very sweet. She's probably about 10 or 11. She asks if he's a policeman and asks if he finds missing fish. And he entertains her to a certain extent, but he says, you know, there's really nothing I can do. We don't usually find missing fish. And when he turns to leave, she tells him that the fish were there the the day before. They're not there now. And that's when it kind of clicks for Steve that somebody could have been there 
taking the fish. And so he asks her questions about the fish, the fact that the fish have names, that she's named every fish in that pond because they're koi fish. And as she tells him, each koi is different. No two koi look alike. So she's given them all names. She knows which ones have gone missing. She knows their history, that they came from Japan like a year ago. I mean, it's so adorable. She draws pictures of them. And some people may question the credibility of that. Those people have never interacted with children. They are like this. So he takes the picture from her and tells Miyoshi he's going to try to find them. He then goes back to the office and tells the guys that, yes, he's putting out an APB for two missing fish. I hear you right, Steve. Are you putting me on? Do I look like I'm making jokes? I said I wanted to put out an all points for two fish, and that's what I meant, two fish. What names do they answer to, boss? Yamamoto-san and Takahashi-san. To tie everything in for the guys, he has Kono go and find him a bucket, which Kono does much faster than plausible. That is more unbelievable than the kid having that much interest in the koi fish. Anyway, so Kono brings him a bucket and Steve shows him that the circular impression that they found came from a bucket. And then he puts out the theory that it's possible that Mira could have caught somebody stealing these koi fish and that led to her death. Because it turns out that koi fish, at least back in 1969, are worth a whole lot of money. Kono makes sure to point out that one sold the year before for $17,000. So someone killing because they got caught stealing a fish isn't out of the realm of possibility. They end up finding the couple that have the fish rather quickly. Turns out that their handyman Lopez got them in touch with a guy named Benny Appa who got them the fish. And the reason why they wanted the fish was because some of their friends told them that if they had some koi fish in their pond, no one would be able to tell them from the locals and they'd only been there a couple of weeks. It is the most ridiculous, rich white people shit, and you know it's true. But anyway, Steve and Kono go looking for Biniapa, and they find him at a cockfight. His rooster and another rooster fix into fight. They don't actually show any cockfighting. I don't see the appeal of cockfighting except for the double entendre jokes. But when they come in, they say they want to talk to him. And like I said, Benny scoops up his his rooster and stands up and they, they film him from below to get that huge, intimidating presence going. He doesn't say anything. He just starts walking towards Kono and Steve and then just football barrels through them. So our first introduction with Benny is one of violence. He's at a cockfight, first of all, and then he just takes out Steve and Kono. I mean, big old Kono to get away. And they end up chasing him into a cane field. And at one point, as Steve and Kono are chasing Benny, Kono obviously runs out of gas, and he goes back for the car. And in that moment, I felt Kono on a soul level. I can relate to that. I don't run. Anyway, Steve chases him into the sugar cane field. They end up getting into a fight. Steve is doing whatever he can to take the big man down. He unfortunately drops his cock. Benny manages to pick up Steve and just chuck him into a ditch. And he grabs his little rooster and, and runs off into the cane field. And the result is that he ends up fracturing a couple of ribs. I have said before, and I will say again, you don't get fights like this on TV nowadays. The fights now, it's all slick, slick editing, quick cuts, smooth moves. Fights on Hawaii Five-O were using karate chops and just chucking folks into ditches. So with Steve Hurt and Benny hiding in the cane field, they decide to use drastic measures to get him out. They contact the owner of the sugar cane field and basically say, your cane's ready for cutting. 
will save you the trouble of burning off the waste in the weeds because we're going to set fire to this field to literally burn Beniapa out. And at first the, the owner's hesitant and then Chin Ho is like, yeah, well, you're not going to be able to get my cousin to help you if you don't help us now. And Chin Ho throwing around his influence, it gets results. They set fire to the field and Benny comes out. The whole team has Benny in a room and they're questioning him. And Benny's not talking. He's not saying a word until someone mentions his rooster. It turns out that Benny is intellectually disabled and it just, it kills you when you realize that he doesn't entirely grasp what's happened and what's going on. His focus is on making sure his rooster is okay because that's what means the most to him. And it just breaks your heart when they question him and you get to the resolution of the episode. It's interesting too to see how the team reacts when they realize they're not dealing with their typical criminal and they realize that Benny's intellectually disabled. You see a subtle change in them as well. They know there's no happy ending here. It's one of those episodes where there really is no real feel of victory because it's just all so sad. It's truly a no-win situation. And sometimes life is just like that. Let's talk about this guest cast because they carried so much of the emotional weight of this episode. As I said, John Hayes was played by Denny Miller. He was the first blonde Tarzan in Tarzan the Ape Man. He was also Duke Shannon on Wagon Train. He played Mike McCluskey on the short-lived series Mona McCluskey. He was also Duke Williams and Tongo the Ape Man on two different episodes of Gilliam's Island. And he was the Gordon's Fisherman for years. He also showed up in I Dream of Jeannie, The Brady Bunch, The Virginian, Gunsmoke, Emergency, Cannon, Wonder Woman, Battlestar Galactica, Rockford Files, Charlie's Angels, Voyagers, Dallas, Murder, She Wrote, and Magnum P.I. Benny Appa was played by Ron Feinberg. We'll see him in two more episodes. He was Detective H.V. Johnson on Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. He also showed up in I Spy, Cannon, Mission Impossible, Emergency, Barney Miller, Different Strokes, and Night Court. He did a lot of cartoon voice acting, including playing Vladimir Gudnov Grizzlekov on Darkwing Duck, and he was the voice of Andre the Giant on Hulk Hogan's Rock and Wrestling. He also showed up in the TV movies Dying Room Only, Brian Song, and The Man in the Santa Claus Suit. Little Miyoshi was played by Marla Kyo. She was on the TV series Promised Land and showed up in the short Ashes to Ashes. The little boy who dumped sand on John Hayes' face, that's Jeffrey Thorpe. We'll see him in three more episodes. He also showed up in The Courtship of Eddie's Father. In this episode, Che Fong was played by Denny Kamakona. This is the second of 32 episodes for him. We've already seen him in And They Painted Daisies on His Coffin. Lieutenant Powers is played by Adam Damaris. This is his only credit. Fred Babbitt, the rich Howley who had the stolen koi fish, was played by Jim Demarest. We'll see him in six more episodes. He also did three episodes of Magna P.I., an episode of Car 54, Where Are You?, and an episode of Jake and the Fat Man. He also showed up in the movie Hawaiian Dream. Most notably, he was Mr. Checkers of the Checkers and Pogo show with our Attorney General, played by Morgan White. The show featured other frequent flyers on Hawaii Five-O as well. Talked more about that in the first episode of the podcast. Risa Babbitt, Fred Babbitt's wife, was played by Jory Remus. 
We'll see her in five more episodes. She also showed up on the Phil Silvers show and Magnum P.I. Stanley, the bartender, who identified John Hayes as the one who wrecked his bar and nearly pulled his arm out of his socket, that was Robert M. Luck. This is his second of 12 episodes. We've already seen him in Tiger by the Tail, where he also played a bartender. Pinder, the owner of the Sugarcane Field, where Benny Apple was hiding, was played by Arthur He. We'll see him in seven more episodes. We've already seen him once in an uncredited role in the episode, and they painted daisies on his coffin. He was also in the movie Inferno in Paradise. I talked plenty about the writer John D.F. Black back in episode four of the podcast. Now, our director, Richard Benedict, I talked all about his acting credits in episode six of the podcast because he showed up in the episode By the Numbers, but he directed quite a few episodes of Hawaii Five-O as well as other television shows, including Surfside Six, Hawaiian Eye, Combat, Run for Your Life, Get Smart, Ironside, Police Story, The Rookies, Man from Atlantis, Fantasy Island, Quincy, and Charlie's Angels. And that is Pray, Love, Remember, Pray, Love, Remember. An emotionally devastating episode, but so good. We get a break from the criminal syndicates and the elaborate schemes to take on a case that's apparently straightforward, but turns out to be a little more complex than that. Definitely emotionally more complex than a lot of the episodes we've seen up until this point. It's got an interesting mix of humor to keep it from being completely depressing, but make no mistake, the end is gut-wrenching. I don't know if you can hear it, but it started raining. Because you know what? This episode even makes the sky sad. Give yourself permission to feel things. Give this one a watch. They're always one step ahead. That's why I got the big office, Dono. Peace and joy, strong brother. Peace. And so ends episode seven of Become Dano. These two episodes kind of presented a mixed bag of tone. One episode gets you all riled up wanting to punch somebody in the face, and the other one makes you want to cry your eyes out. And since I'm pairing these episodes in chronological order, we're probably going to get more episodes like that. Something to look forward to for the long haul. So as always, thanks for listening. I hope you're enjoying the shows. I know I am. I'm enjoying sharing my thoughts on Hawaii Five-0 with all of you, even when I'm putting myself into self-imposed time crunches and driving myself crazy doing it. If you'd like to find me online, you can do that by going to kikiwritesabout.com. There you will find the home of Bookum Dano. You will also find all of my rerun junkie blog posts, the rest of my blog posts, links to my published work, links to my Patreon. You can even buy me a coffee if you'd like because that's what I need right now. More caffeine. And if you'd like to watch me stress myself out in real time, you can do that by following me on Twitter, at GeekyWrites. Despite the wildly different episodes, I feel we've learned a couple of valuable lessons here. Never bet against Steve, and never challenge Chin Ho's influence. Until next time, aloha.